to a Hope 103.2 podcast. In describing God's final judgment, Jesus declared in Matthew 8 verse 11, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But on another occasion, Jesus put the same theme in a quite different way. Matthew 13, verse 41. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Outer darkness or a fiery furnace? Which is it? I mean, as far as I know, you can't have both darkness and fire at the same time. Well, this highlights the first of several important things I want to say about our topic tonight. Many of the Bible's descriptions of final judgment are not to be taken literally. I said earlier in the series that descriptions of Jesus' return in glory, his second coming, employ the symbolism of a well-known ancient literary style known as apocalyptic. The same is true of the Bible's description of the final judgment. Apocalyptic symbols abound. I mean, Revelation chapter 18 and 19 illustrates this powerfully. Listen to this frightening passage. Revelation eighteen twenty one. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, With such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. Or Revelation 19, verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulphur. Even the biblical word hell is fundamentally a metaphor. The word here is Gehenna. That's the word translated hell throughout the New Testament. And it was originally the name of a valley south of Jerusalem. It was called the Valley of Hinnom. In Hebrew, Gehinnom. In Jesus' Aramaic, Gehinnom, which is transliterated into Greek as Gehenna. I know that's all complicated, but you kind of need to know some of that if you want to get behind these concepts. This valley, this valley of Gehenna, if you like, was infamous as the place where the ancient Israelites, 600 years before Jesus, conducted terrible child sacrifices and where, as a result, God said he would bring the Israelites to ruin. Here's the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, chapter 7, verse 30. The people of Judah have done evil in my eyes, declares the Lord. They have set up their detestable idols in the house that bears my name and have defiled it. They have built the high places of Topheth, 
in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, Gehenna, to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, something I did not command, nor did it enter my mind. So beware, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer call it Topheth, or the valley of Ben-Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury the dead in Topheth, until there is no room. Then the carcasses of this people will become food for the birds of the air, and the beasts of the earth, and there will be no one to frighten them away. Well, this deathly, fiery valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, became the ultimate symbol in Israel for the apocalyptic judgment of God. The New Testament inherited this symbol using the word Gehenna, translated hell, twelve times to refer to the place of God's final judgment. My point is this. The Bible's images of judgment, whether of fire, darkness, Gehenna, or the weeping and gnashing of teeth, are all metaphors and are not to be taken literally. We mustn't therefore demand to know precisely what the judgment of God is going to be like, how it will be applied, how it will be experienced, and so on. We can know a few things for sure, and we'll be looking at these. The rest we have to leave in the unresolved basket. Well, having said all that, please don't misunderstand me. Metaphors are employed in the Bible not because there is no reality behind these images, but because the reality these metaphors signify is so potent that straightforward language is completely inadequate. Metaphors of judgment mustn't be taken literally, but they must be taken seriously. And this is the second thing I want to say tonight. Judgment language is not to be taken lightly. Nowadays, people often reject altogether any idea of divine judgment. And part of the reason for this, I suspect, is a reaction to the fire and brimstone preaching in some quarters of the church. A friend of mine was put off church in her early 30s after hearing a series of very angry sermons about God's judgment. She said the preacher actually seemed to enjoy telling everyone they were going to hell. It was another three decades before this friend of mine took another look at the faith of her youth. But there's another reason society rejects the notion of God's judgment. We simply don't like it. I know I've said before that cognitive dissonance theory in psychology tells us that people tend to modify or create beliefs in order to suit their preferences. This is sometimes thrown at Christians in the form of belief in God is just a psychological crutch, an invention to remedy the dissonance in our lives. But actually, I reckon the boot is frequently on the other foot. The inconvenience of the notion of a God who is unhappy with our way of life is a powerful motivator to exclude that kind of God from our thinking. It's not that a God like this is inherently implausible. It's just that it doesn't endorse my way of life, my preference. The preferred God for many in our contemporary society 
is the vague, distant creator. The one who kick-started the universe, but now, if he thinks of us at all, basically approves of everything we do. We've removed the dissonance between our fallen lives and the notion of judgment by dispensing with a judging God altogether. But those of us who want to be guided by Christ rather than by our cultural preferences have to resist this mental sleight of hand. We have to learn to see things Christ's way. And once we decide to do that, we're confronted by the fact that Jesus regularly and without any apology underlined the seriousness of God's judgment. Indeed, one of the Bible's best-kept secrets is that the person most vocal about divine judgment in the Bible is not Jeremiah or the Apostle Paul, but Jesus. In fact, of the twelve references to hell, Gehenna, in the New Testament, eleven come from the lips of Jesus. If you've got a pen, here's the list. Matthew 5.22, Matthew 5.29, verse 30, Matthew 10.28, Matthew 18.9, Matthew 23.15, Matthew 23.33, Mark 9.43, Mark 9.45, Mark 9.47, and Luke 12, verse 5. The remaining instance of the word hell actually comes from the Lord's brother, James, in James chapter 3, verse 6. My point is to dismiss or ignore or soften the idea of God's final judgment is to depart from a key element of what Jesus taught and who he claimed to be. Hope 103.2 Thanks for listening.